so much different than you. Be thankful for a week or two. The amount of time and how we energy and effort that goes into preparation for Sunday morning and just to be brought into the presence of God Just a wonderful thing. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3 this morning. So go ahead and turn there if you will. Jonah chapter 3. I wonder, are there any Paul Harvey fans? I used to listen to Paul Harvey as a kid, and, and uh, I feel like as we're coming into Jonah chapter, at chapter 3, I feel a little bit like Paul Harvey and the rest of the story, right? We, we hit Jonah 1 and 2. We're going to come to chapter 3 uh, this morning and share a little bit more about what, uh, what God is doing in the heart of, of Jonah. Before we do that, let's just give this time to the Lord very briefly and just let's ask that God be with us. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. Guide us, strengthen us, light our hearts, illuminate the word of God, give us understanding, bring us to a place where we honor Pixar Ridge, a November of 2016 movie that was produced by Mel Gibson. Anybody has seen it? Pixar Ridge? Thank you. Features the true story of private first class Desmond King Dock, who won the Congressional Medal of Honor despite refusing to bear arms during World War II on religious grounds. Doss was a Christian, and he wouldn't touch a weapon or worked on the Sabbath, and he enlisted in the army as a combat medic because he believed in the cause, though he vowed not to kill. The army wanted nothing to do with him. They tried to get rid of him. They tried to, to boot him out. In fact, his, his fellow soldiers considered him a pest, a nuisance. They questioned his sincerity. They threw shoes at him while he prayed, and Doss's commanding officer, who was Captain Jack Glover, tried to get him transferred. In a documentary based on Doss's life, Glover says that Doss told him, don't ever doubt my courage because I will be right by your side saving life while you take it. At Okinawa in the spring of 1945, Doss's company faced a grueling task, climb a steep, jagged cliff sometimes referred to as Hacksaw Ridge, to a plateau where thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers were waiting for them. The terrain was treacherous, and under a barrage of gunfire and explosions, Das crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier. He dragged severely injured men out of the battle to the cliff, tied a rope around their bodies and lowered them down to the medics below. The crazy thing about this story is his, his troop had left. They, they had evacuated, but Das's heart was focused in on his mission of rescuing the soldiers. In the documentary, the, uh, Das says, I was praying the whole time. I just kept praying, Lord, give me the courage to rescue just one more. Veteran Carl Bentley, who was also at Hacksaw Ridge, once said it was as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. That's the only explanation I could give. Try 
private first class Desmond Keen Dodge saved 75 men that day, including his captain, Jack Lowe, over a 12-hour period of time. The same soldiers who had shamed him now praised him. He was one of the bravest persons alive, Glover said in battle. And the irony, the irony of the whole thing was to have him wind up saving You know, as we reflect on this story this morning at Packstar Ridge, let let me ask you a question. What is it that motivates a man to put down his life in such a remarkable way? Fortune? Glory? Let's try this out. For Private Josh, it was an unshakable commitment. This commitment fueled a courage in his heart in the face of fear. It fueled humility in the face of pride and love in the place of hate. You know, as we studied the last time we met on Jonah, we saw a man who was called by God to an incredibly challenging task of taking God's message to a violent people who were far from faith And as we opened up with this gripping story of of Hacksaw Ridge, you know, I have to ask the question, in what ways were Jonah and Private Josh similar? Well, both had a mission, right? Both were given humanly impossible odds. You think about it, you're facing thousands of Japanese soldiers at the top of this plateau. Your odds aren't very good. In fact, some might even say this is a suicide mission. You're going to be climbing this hill to your death. Humanly impossible lives. Both were faced with Unfortunately, that's where the similarities end in the verse of the story. As fear gripped Jonah's heart, we witnessed last time we met, we witnessed Jonah's reluctance to go. And as we review the events of chapters 1 and 2 to catch up those who weren't here, Let's revisit the story as unfolded last time. In fact, when when God met Jonah, when God called Jonah, we saw in Jonah Jonah 1 and 2, we saw Jonah attempting to flee in the opposite direction. He boards the ship, heading to Tarshish. And God says, you know what? This isn't what I want for you, Jonah. He confronts the disobedience by bringing a terrible storm in verse 4. Members of the crew panic. They cast lots to determine what it is that they need to do. And the lot fell to Jonah. They realized he was the problem, verse 7. He was the reason for their present crisis. God prepared a great fish, which swallowed Jonah whole, verse 17. And there Jonah remained, right? Soaking in his own misery. There that Jonah pleaded with God for salvation. And God caused the great fish in that little fish to dry land. And this is where he stood. As we open up our time here this morning, we pick up our story in chapter 3, where Jonah sits on the beach, stinky, tired, grateful to be spared, undoubtedly. 
and sitting alone when God visits him a second time. As we soldier on in our story this morning, we're going to see two more key heart issues for Jonah as he wrestles with God's calling on his life. First of all, we're going to see a pride which fueled his resentment. And then lastly this morning, we're going to see a hate that ultimately robs him of the true joy that comes from pursuing all that God has. Let's start by looking at the text. We pick up our story in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you didn't bring your Bible, the scriptures are up on the screen for you to follow. The author writes this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I should tell you. So Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So basically, he did that. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in its breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Harsh message for a violent people, right? God told Jonah to go yet again and preach out against the wickedness of this seemingly God-forsaken nation. Jonah was terrified. What do we remember last week about the people of Nineveh? Last time we met, rather, about the people of Nineveh. They, they were violent, right? They were dangerous. They were far from God. And despite his reluctance, for three days, Jonah's walking the streets of the city, preaching the gospel of repentance. And what did God do? What are the ways in which God showed up? Let's look at verse 5 through 10 here. The author writes this, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He, he issued a proclamation. He published it throughout all of Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, he said, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He did not What a story. You know, the people of Nineveh believed God. Do we understand how significant this is? They called for a fast. The king himself was confronted with the depths of his own depravity. To the point that he issued a decree throughout all the city, commanding everyone to repent and seek favor of the God of heaven. They turned from their wicked ways. They took part of genuine faith. God used Jonah, in spite of his fears, to bring the most wicked of nations to himself. To bring the most wicked king of the age to his knees. What a victory. You know, I would love to think, out of this wishful thinking, I'd love to think that if something like that happened today, if ISIS turned to Jesus, if Al-Qaeda turned to Jesus, that there would be a celebration like no other in the world, even Jonah. 
churches would become an instrument of discipleship. Resources would be given to further God's work, to advance His kingdom, to advance His cause, right? We love to think that. You know, in, in Jonah's case, in spite of this amazing gospel success, the Scripture records in chapter 4, but it is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, Lord. For I knew that you were a gracious God. You were merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. In fact, the scripture says that he vented his frustrations to Almighty God. He's saying, God, I knew this is what was going to happen. This is why I fled to Tarshish, God. This is why I didn't want to involve myself in your mission. This is just like you, God. I knew you were merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You always do this, God. You save people who don't deserve it. Fill me now, God. It's better for me to die than to live with what I'm facing. How could a man witness such an amazing miracle of God's grace in the face of persecution? Despise it, even to the point of making Jesus Christ. Pride, fear, and Jonah viewed himself as being Set apart as God's chosen people certainly must come with its share of perks and rewards, right? God's blessings, God's favor, God's kindness, exclusivity. Shoot, if I've if I've been chosen by God, and I, I, that's got to count for something. He was handpicked by God. Jonah was handpicked to be God's spokesman. These blessings belong to me, God, and the rest of God's chosen race. Not the people of Jonah had an incorrect In his mind, Jonah had not committed the same sins as the people of Nineveh. So certainly that had to count for something. Certainly that had to give him a better standing in God's eyes. As if God sits in heaven and places savability ratings on his people. This one's worth saving. That one, not so much. In Jonah's eyes, he was not given for their debauched behavior. Jonah failed to see the depths of his own depravity. If Jonah only had the wisdom in that moment, in fact, when God found Jonah, just as when God found us, He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He was walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He was living in the passions of his flesh. He was carrying out the desires of his flesh, his mind, his body. He was by very nature a child of God's wrath. This was our reality, brothers and sisters. We were dead when God found 
again. In his infinite grace, he stepped in and he rescued that broken frame of heart. There's so many times when we when we think about gospel, pride fuels our resentment as if we have anything innately good in us that gives us this right to lay claim on God's special favor. The truth is, church, without Jesus, we stand with Nineveh, condemned. Fortunately, God did not leave Jonah sulking in his own depravity, just as God did not leave us there. But God, right? Hebrews 2 6, who is rich in mercy because of the love, the great love with which he loved us. And Jonah made him alive, gave him faith, put breath in his lungs, life giving blood in his veins, and a mission of going to a people that yet remained in darkness to share what God had blessed him with that they might also escape the full force of God's wrath. Let's pray. Even to the point of wishing Jesus dead. This attitude, this, this pride fueled his resentment for a people that God desired to draw to himself. Honestly, brothers and sisters, as we evaluate our own hearts this morning, as I evaluated my heart in preparation for this message, are we so resentful? Do we find this same resentment creeping up in all of us as it relates to certain people? Like ISIS, Abraham, Solomon, just like envy. And you know what bothers me? Osama bin Laden was killed. The amount of celebration that was—I didn't even think about that. I mean, I find myself thinking, "Man, that's a horrible man. He's spending these things in Iraq as an object of God's wrath. Just to carry with us hate and enmity." What if God asked you to take the gospel to them? What if God asked you to go to Dearborn? And minister to the Muslim community. What if God asked you to be a salt and a light in that dark place? For some of us, maybe it's the next crisis. For some, maybe it's racial prejudice. I, I, I found myself thinking in ways that I hadn't thought in a while. And just saying, I'm sure it's not that bad. Start reflecting on that. And am I knowing? You know what? My, my own heart, I feel this prejudice welling up inside. Not intentional, but it's just, it's one of those things that I have to recognize as part of my flesh, and I have to do war with it. I have to love the people that God loves. I have to pursue the people that God calls me to pursue. Maybe it's economic prejudice. Maybe it's social prejudice. You know, maybe you're, you're saying this morning that none of these apply to your heart. Maybe it's something different for you. Maybe you say, you know what, I find it difficult to love people that we fill in the blank. Maybe it's your neighbor that has allowed you to maybe it's a co-worker, co-worker, or somebody that you interact with on a daily basis. You know, as I was evaluating my heart in preparation for this morning, I was 
was asking myself some critical questions. Was I trying to value a tiny part of something with my own prejudice? And I asked myself some questions. I'm going to ask them to you. Perhaps you can relate as you think through this lens of what was kind of discussed. First question, do I find myself looking for Christian alternatives to common activities so that I can insulate myself and my family from Again, do I find myself looking for Christian alternatives to common activities so that I can insulate my family from contact with the world? Am I looking for ways to avoid contact with lost people? Am I looking for ways to not have to engage? Am I thrilled when my calendar is filled up with stuff going up and going on in this building? Because then I'm off the hook, right? All of these things are great, but what is God saving us for? To engage the mission, to go out of this, this building and turn the world upside down for the sake of the gospel. My mindset ought to be, show me the darkness, God, because I have the light. I want to take it to them. Like Private Gus, give me the courage, God, to rescue just one more. Do I find myself avoiding certain parts of town that seem to be a bit more depressed than the neighborhood that I came from? This was a hard one. Because I know we were living in that day. And I found myself saying to myself, I'll be kind. I want to be careful about I'm kind. I'm a short person. I want to, I want to push you towards me. I can't wait to get to my people. Because then I feel like I'm Because I look back. Put you in and in of a life because I wanted you to turn this area upside down for the sake of the gospel. Because I trust myself, I talk to myself, that I feel out of place. Yes. Then you have to that God teaches me. He wants to teach me. Now, all of that can change, right? So if I recognize that's my heart and that's my struggle, I can do business with God and get it right to pursue what God is calling me to do. But do I find myself avoiding areas of town that are more difficult than others? When walking down the sidewalk and I see down the block a man of a different race, with a very typical skin, ball cap top to the side, am I tempted to cross to the other side of the street so as to avoid Do I tend to avoid culturally diverse settings? When I see a Muslim man with a prayer cap or a woman whose face is covered in traditional Islamic Head coverings is my initial assumption in my mind, asking questions in regards to their involvement, stereotypes. This one hit me particularly hard with my kids in school. Do I squirm at the thought of putting my kids in the public school because of the varying views and the different types of people my kids will be put into contact with? They're not ready. What if? Challenging question. You know, God wants us. To engage the world with the gospel, so that we might come into the kingdom, so that we might rescue this dying heart, that we might show them the love of Jesus and the joy that comes from living a life devoted to Him. Prejudice hits really close to my heart. Think about my walk with God, and maybe it's the same for you. 
don't struggle with that issue in any way whatsoever. The point is that if we are in Christ, we've been purchased with the shed blood of His Son, and His own Son is now purchased for the benefit of His people, advancing His cause. He's taking His Word to a world that doesn't know Him. This is His eternal purpose, brothers and sisters. This is His desire for each and every one of us. This means going into the dark places of this world, ministering in those settings that are outside of our comfort zones, and not being afraid because Jesus is with us. So one of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Daryl Campbell, devoted his life to fighting Jesus over that world. Serving faithfully in the Congo, in the jungles of Saranac, South America, enduring hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And for what? Daryl desired to see God become a person. Bless God for Christ. Daryl had this to say. In fact, he said it wherever he went. And those of you who went to North America, multitude redeemed by the blood of his land, slain from the foundation of the world, over whom he was not crucified, the lion of the tribe of Judah, king of kings and lord of lords forever. This is the passion of the heart of God that cannot be found. The obsession of his mind that cannot be denied. The vision of his eye that cannot grow dim. The destination to which he has committed his omnipotent, immutable, eternal being, a destination For some reason, he desires to use broken, simple-minded, knuckleheads like me. God didn't choose me because I have it all together. Nor did God choose me because of some special gift or talent that he saw in me. That he needed to employ. No, God chose me for no other reason than to glorify himself. He'd forgotten the purpose for which he'd been redeemed. And as the story picks up in chapter 4, verse 4, we see the Lord patiently dealing with his rebel saints. And honestly, brothers and sisters, if God had chosen to strike Jonah down dead here, right now, no one no one would have said that God got his work done. It's interesting, though, that as the story picks up, we find quite the opposite result. Verse 4, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city and made a beach in Tarshish. He sat under it, under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his distress. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was scorched. He asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, consider the plant for which you have It doesn't grow. It came into being in the night, and it perished in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 
Class is still in session in the beginning. And in the final verses of this powerful little book, God is seeking to bring Jonah to some very critical truths of what he's doing. It's interesting, though, that as God deals with Jonah here, he doesn't simply bring down the hammer to accusation. His desire was to shepherd Jonah to a new way of life. And he opens up the dialogue with a question. Do you do well to be angry? Or is it right for you to be angry here? Jonah didn't answer. You know, I get the picture of a frustrating conversation with a child who just needs to engage parents, right? He's trying to pull out the first week. In anger, Jonah storms off. He goes outside the city. He suddenly went off. He sat to the east of the city. He made himself a booth. And he sat in the shade, watching from a distance. I wonder what he was looking for. Maybe God relented from his mercy. It's unclear, but there he sat, nonetheless. He's sitting there and he's looking on. Recognizing Jonah's resistance to dialogue, God in his mercy still was patient to teach through this object lesson. In his patience, he desired for Jonah to see the light and to understand the truth. So what does he do? God appoints a planter for him. He grew up and provided him shade from the Scriptures say that this brought Jonah much joy. His heart was exceedingly glad because for a brief moment, he had he had his ease. He had his comfort. His joy, however, would be shortened as the next day God decided to crush the plant. Scriptures say that God appointed a worm to eat the plant so that it withered and died. God brought a scorching east wind. Jonah was faint so much, in fact, that he asked for shelter. God returned to his original line of questioning, and now that he had Jonah's attention, he asked him, he says, Jonah, you seem angry. Jonah responds in verse 9, I think a lot of emotion, as Jonah retorts, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. It's as if Jonah is saying to God Almighty in heaven, you're darn right I'm angry. You killed my plan. How dare you? dialogue with Jonah comes to its close. God faithfully brings us to the crux of this passage. Let's look at it again. You pity the plan for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow. It came into being in the night, perished in the night. And should I not pity you? Pity the plan. You have 120,000 people. They don't know their right hand from their left. You love this plant more than you love this people, Jonah. You are at the center of the planet's universe. You are not about this fear fueled his resentment. Pride fueled his prejudice. Hatred in his heart kept him from loving the mission and the people to which God had called him to love. 
point. Honestly, as I reflect on this interchange between Jonah and God, I find that many times in my own heart, I'm not so different. When I consider the things that keep me from engaging God's mission, my own heart, it's fear of rejection. I don't want to be seen as that overzealous neighbor. I want people to like me. You know, as Pastor Daniel's talking about this radical idea of hospitality, right? This opening of my home, this showing Jesus and sharing Jesus with people that are far from Him, a willingness to give of oneself. That's a scary thing. You put yourself out there and you make some invitations and you start going to your neighbors, you're going to get some no's. You might get a lot of no's. But don't, don't let the fear of rejection keep you from pursuing what God has for you. Maybe it's fear of persecution. How are they going to be? How are they going to respond to me? What if they reject my message? What if I go that extra mile? I share Jesus with them. They come to find out they're they're haters of God. Now I'm at odds with them. My relationship is hindered. Maybe it's love of comfort. I am more into me right now than I am when I am interested in stepping out of my comfort zone. That radical Christian faith of saying, that is for the missionaries, that is for the pastors, that is for these people. I'm going to pray for them. I'm even going to give them my money. But don't ask me. Don't ask me for me. Don't ask me for this or for that. That is outside of the realm of what I Maybe it's narrow-minded prejudice. God, you can't be calling us to share Jesus with the Maybe it's cultural confusion. God, the greatest teacher of the What's more, they can't even say the definition of it. How can I ask you for this? Maybe it's social stigma. God, this area you're calling me to is poverty stricken. This people group you are calling me to minister to just isn't me. I live on the good side of town, God. Can't I just minister there? After all, they need Jesus to Let me ask you a question as we bring our time to a close this morning. What does it mean? What do we take from the faith that sets this opposition to the mission that God has called us? We see God in all of His magnificent glory. Look at Isaiah 6. Think about this. As Isaiah is confronted with the Shekinah glory of God, he sees Him for who He is. We cannot help but see ourselves in all of our pre-grace, depraved wretchedness. But with a grateful heart and a vision of God's glory, we begin to see God strip away the fear Furthermore, this, this view of God is faithful to crush my pride and to replace it with a heart of humility as I recognize that in light of God's holiness, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips talking with a guy the other day about why he doesn't darken the doors of his church. And his words to me 
where, where the, the church is full and the pastor's the answer is always the same thing and who's the same man? We're all the same. We battle with the flesh. We fight with sin. From the pastors on down to the people, we're all in the same boat. I am a man of understanding. Armed with this view of God and this right view of self and this inexpressible courage, I'm moved with compassion to look on the nation. This is the mission that encompasses what we call the church. This isn't categorized in the church stuff. And then I've got the life stuff, and the life stuff is different than the church stuff. So don't mess with my life stuff. So this is about a mission that encompasses every aspect of life. So what does it look like? One. One. I'm going to share this with you, and I want you to jot this. So take a note. Jot these down, because this is important. Prepare your heart. Prepare your heart. I would encourage you, as, as you're coming away from a message like this, to ask yourself the question, where am I in this continuum? Am I wrestling in my heart with the truth? Am I wrestling in my heart with the pride and the prejudice and the hatred? Where am I in the midst of all of this? And what are those thoughts, what are those mindsets that I need to confront with God? I just want to ask you that. Prepare your heart. Ask God, to root out those things that are keeping you from the one thing Number two, pray for the mission. Pray for the mission. And it, it, you know, we, we talk about prayer a lot in this church, and I love that. We have our pastoral prayer. We've got our prayer praise. We do our Wednesday night church time. We're encouraging you to be a body that's committed and devoted but I think a lot of times we think of prayer as like as though it's this domestic intercom in which I can get a hold of God in heaven and squabble about things that bother me. Instead of thinking it as a, of it as a, a wartime walkie-talkie, John Piper said this. I love that. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. I'm communicating with my commander-in-chief. I'm, I'm strategizing through prayer in God's pursuit of mission in me. And I make that a regular priority for me and my family. Make it a family pursuit. A good friend of mine has his Holy Ghost system, and it always makes me laugh. That's what he calls it, Holy Ghost system. We're praying for these people that God would bring them to faith. Maybe that'll work for you. Holy Ghost system. For us in Illinois, we did a we did a family prayer pie chart, big circle on a post. And in that pie chart, we've got all of our different sections. We've got schools. We've got neighbors. We've got um, co-workers. We've got um, running friends. We've got other categories that, that we interact with lost people on a daily basis. And in those categories, we start writing names that God is placing in our path. And every day, every day, we pray for a different category. 
I want to quit doing that. We haven't done it in a while. We take our eye off the ball and we forget to strategize on the mission. And maybe that's an idea that will work for you. Praying for the lost. And you might say, you know what? My neighbor column, it's pretty empty because I don't know any of them. Well, there you go. Right there. Begin with meeting neighbors. And as you meet, put your hands on them. You're praying specifically for them every week that God would move their hearts towards the church goes. That God would use you to engage the mission. And guess what will happen as you pray for mission? What do you think will happen? Do you think that's a do you think that's an, an effectual fervent prayer that God will decide to answer? He's going to put you in that path in a way that's going to make a profound difference for all of eternity. Pray for the mission. Prepare your heart. Pray for the mission. Number three, prioritize the mission. Make room in your schedule. I would almost advocate rewrite the schedule. And think through schedule with the lens of mission. Look at your week and say, what can we do to be engaging the lost, building time in that calendar, which gets ever busy, to be about the things that God would have you to be about. Here's what works for us. We say, you know what, what do we like to do in the morning? We're going to make our list. We say, what we like doing in the morning? She was, she was laughing at me because she was moving boxes into my house. And guess what? We have people over that don't know Jesus that love games. For us, that's an easy way for us as a family to be intentional about a So gaming is a big one. In Illinois, we had a bunch of people that we get we get together with on a regular basis. They don't have friends, but they'd hang out for three hours and play a strategy game. So you think about it. You got you got an audience for three hours. You're sharing life. You're talking about family. You're you're engaging in those conversations about religion and some of those taboo topics. And it's a whole lot of gospel that's happening in that time. Prioritize the mission. Make room in the schedule. Look at your life and ask that question. What do I like to do? Now find lost people to do it with. If it's running, find lost people to run with. Join a local running group. If it's gaming, connect with the community through gaming. If it's sports, find groups that you can plug into. Why? So that we can engage the lost and put them out. Prioritize the mission. Move when God says move. Embrace the awkward. Take full advantage of the tools at your disposal. Light, patient, for the sake of engaging the mission our way. If you want ideas, come and ask I'd love to share some of the things that we've done. But prioritize the mission. And then lastly, pursue it in community. Do it together. The beauty of life, right? We exist together in the body. We're walking together. We're pursuing mission together. You know what? I might be looking at myself and saying, I'm not naturally like that. That's hard for me. I struggle. I struggle talking to people that know Jesus, let alone people that don't. You know, it's tough. Okay? So find somebody in the body. Find somebody in the body that you can go at it with. Somebody that maybe is a little more active. And say, hey, I'd love to, I'd love to reach out to my neighbor. Can you just pray for me? Can you 
you willing to do it with me? Would you open out a book out and I see some hypotheticals that don't proceed in my mind? You know what? I, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we come to a close here this morning. And as they do, I'm going to ask you to consider something. As we think about the story, right, we saw this amazing transformation that took place in Nineveh in spite of Jonah's heart that was far from the heart of God. But how might the story have been different if these godly participants had been a point to put his heart in God? If he had an eagerness to go and set up camp where God would then go? If he had a reluctance to leave, these, these people need a shepherd, God. You're on the move. I don't want to leave, God. This is powerful. They came to know you, and I'm in, God. Don't take me away from here. You're moving. They need you, and I can be used by you. A heart to see them grow and flourish in their newfound faith in God. As it were, this wasn't the case. And how does the story end? Well, sadly, if you fast forward a hundred years or so, you find the book of Numbers, another minor prophet. Another one of God's prophets sent by God to the people of Nineveh. The message this time, doom and destruction as they enter Nineveh return to their wicked and Think about it. You have the king all the way down to the youngest, embracing the God of heaven. And then a hundred years go by, and they're back to where they were. How might the story have been Where are you this morning? Ready to go? Eager to give? Ready to be spent for the sake of the kingdom? Or powerless? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we pray that your word will encourage us as we see them.